The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Cromer Mashburn Family Studios at Public Radio WMKV. 89.3 in Reading and WLHS 89.9 in Westchester. We are here every single solitary Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to be a resource for you to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And my goodness, isn't real estate investing hot again? We went through that cycle where everybody and their mama wanted to be in real estate. And you were seeing articles about real estate investors in, goodness gracious, Woman's Day, (laughs) Reader's Digest, uh, you know, the media that was not uh, even financially related. And then we had the giant crash in the market. And for a number of years, everyone was trying to sort of find their way. And we were still around. And now all the feedback I get as I travel around the country speaking to real estate associations is there's no deals in my area, as if your area were unique in the United States. You're the only place in the country where there's lots of people and not a lot of MLS inventory. Well, that's that's the market right now, and that was the market in 2005, and it's been the market off and on. There's a reason they call it a cyclical market. So... We're here trying to keep you up to date on what's working now all the time and for the last 15 years here on Real Life Real Estate. And one of the ways that we try to provide this service is by having a monthly question and answer show where anything you have that has sort of come to mind in regards to the real estate market, your own investing, the career you want to have, any particular strategy... Uh, you can call in or write in with your questions. Uh, the call-in number is 877-772-9658. You can also send us an email. You're going to do that through our website. So that means you're going to go to realliferealestate.com. On that website, you will see a tab that says Ask Vina a Question which you can use 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and it will get to me, and eventually it will show up on a question and answer week. But if you do that today before the end of the show, at just a little short of 6 o'clock, we will try to get that <coughs> excuse me, answered today. 
Again, question and answer week. Any topic is a fair topic. Uh, 877-772-9658 is the number here in the studio. Or you can ask a question by email by going to realliferealestate.com. A question here from Elena, Elena, uh, Elena, uh, who is apparently from somewhere in Ohio because she says, do we need to pay interest on our tenant's deposit according to Ohio law 5321.16a? And that's a great question, uh, Alina, that, that landlords throughout the country should be looking to their own state laws for because uh, there are places where you have to pay a prevailing interest rate on a tenant's deposit. You have to pay a specific set rate of interest in some places. In some places, you don't have to pay interest on the tenant's deposit at all. Um, in Ohio, as I recall, without specifically looking up that law, you have to pay interest on tenant's deposits if they exceed a one month's rent deposit. And in that case, I believe you also have to hold hold the deposit in a separate escrow account and not mix it with your own money. Um, so if you're collecting, you know, if you're if the rent's seven fifty a month and you're collecting twice that because the tenant's high risk or something like that, you need to pay interest. Uh, the question is, what interest? And here, here's where here's where it kind of gets iffy, and landlords around the country don't necessarily understand this. If the interest is at is at the interest that you are getting from your bank by depositing that money, I'm guessing that interest is zero, right? Because you can't you can't have like an interest bearing account with seven hundred and fifty dollars in it or fourteen hundred dollars in it. Uh, in some states, the law actually states that there's a specific amount of interest that you have to pay that may exceed the interest that you are getting in the bank account where the deposit is being held. Uh, and th- those laws were written back when you know you could you could open up a passbook savings account and get seven percent interest. My first passbook savings account had a seven percent interest rate from the bank. That wasn't a mortgage. That was me getting seven percent interest. Uh, so, you know, they're written at like 5% and you can't, you can't get anything like that from the bank. So, so basically it's like you're borrowing the tenant's money when in fact they have put it up to assure their, uh, lack of destruction and non-payment of rent and so on. Uh, so wherever you are in the country, you might want to check your state's law in regards to interest. And let me also give you an unasked for tip regarding tenant deposits. And that is don't spend them. It is so easy uh, to collect a tenant's deposit in January and know that you may have to return some or all of it in December. But in the meantime, it sort of gets, you know, spent on mortgage payments or whatever. Uh, It actually isn't your money. It's actually the tenant's money until such time as they, uh, use it, you know, as they as they move out without paying some rent or alternatively do some damages, which really if they're still living there, they need to pay for it at the time. But move out having done some damages, then you can receipt. I took this, 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 and this out of your security deposit and here's what's left. In the meantime, it's a really good idea to have a separate account for those. And in fact, it's a good idea to have a separate account for your rental reserves, period, that you are funneling a certain amount of money into every month and just keep that there, you know, 
un untouched. Don't mix it up with your money that you're allowed to spend. So uh, thank you very much for your question, Alina. It is real. It is a question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. If you have a question about any aspect of real estate investing, you can call at 877-772-9658. You can also go to our website at realliferealestate.com. Use the question and answer tab to send us an email. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and uh, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means if you have any question about getting started, getting out, buying deals, wholesaling, retailing, renting, lease optioning, land contracts, financing, anything you want to talk about, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email by going to realliferealestate.com. You can stay in touch with Real Life Real Estate by joining our email list there at realliferealestate.com. Uh, we send out an email every week with an article that will help you with your real estate skills and letting you know that the show is happening and anything else that might be going on in the real estate world around the country. Uh, going to have a special offer for subscribers coming up in the third week of June, second week of June, I guess. Uh, we're going to do a five-week wholesaling quick start series that you need to register for, but which will not cost you anything. Um, and you will hear about that when you sign up at realliferealestate.com. It's right up in the upper corner. It says stay in touch. And uh, it's a good way to do that. Uh, questions coming in from listeners who are using our website at realliferealestate.com and I clicked out of the folder where those are and now I'm trying to tap dance on live radio until I can find it again. Uh, here we go. This one is from Daniel, who is, I'm going to say, from East Point, Michigan. Uh, he says, one of the problems that causes the existence of vacant, ugly, abandoned houses lies with banks. There's a vacant, burnt-out house in East Point, Michigan that I would love to purchase. It's a cute brick bungalow and looks fine on the outside. However, the city has been dealing with this problem property for three years and it has been condemned and is scheduled for demolition. The problem is that there's a $115,000 mortgage on the place and the bank has not been responsive. The ARV of the house today is about 60 and it would not make sense to purchase more for more than about five. You're, I'm like your previous caller and I'm quite capable of completing a full rehab but cannot take on the project since the lender would have to completely write off the loan. Uh, yeah, Daniel, there's no question that the shadow inventory, all of those properties where the loans are defaulted, but the properties are not being foreclosed on, uh, is getting old. The shadow inventory is getting old. There are many properties around that if the bank had foreclosed on them five years ago, when the loan went bad three years ago, when the loan went bad, would have still had some economic value. The property could have been re renovated by someone at a price that would have made 
since. Uh, but as they sit around for years and get caught, get set on fire, the roofs leak, they rot, they get mold, more and more time passes, um, they, they decline in value. And as you imply here in your uh, email, the cities do in fact get actively angry about these properties and uh, many cities now have, uh, or at least in the last uh, year or two, have had uh, money available for the teardown of these properties and have been aggressively ripping them down if the banks did not take them back and do something with them. At the same time, we do live in a capitalist world and the bank had $115,000 in that property. They made the business decision that throwing in extra money to foreclose on it, especially given the long foreclosure processes in a lot of states and expensive foreclosure processes was not worth it on this particular property. Uh, I'm guessing that they might have paid more to foreclose on it than you would be willing to pay them. So it makes sense for them to not deal with it. Now, I'm going to shine a little ray of light into your life here. If you will go back into the Real Life Real Estate archives on iTunes, which you can also you can also find them at realliferealestate.com, and look for a presenter named Joe Lucas and a topic called Zombie Properties. The reason the bank could not respond to any offers to buy this property is that they do not own this property. Someone owns it, and it would be that person who you would need to buy it from. You're thinking, well, that person can't sell it to me because there has to be, a, you know, satisfaction is $115,000 mortgage, and that's not necessarily true. If you got the property as part of a quitclaim deed, you could then file suit against the bank to force them to either come to the table or give up on their lien. In other words, wipe the lien clean. If the seller gave you the property and you did this lawsuit and it was successful, which my understanding is it is successful like 90% of the time, uh, you would have bought the property effectively for under $5,000. So that's something to look for in these what we call zombie properties where the owner clearly doesn't want them and the bank apparently doesn't want them because they are not filing the foreclosure suit. So again, look for the podcast with Joe Lucas. It's only, I don't know, maybe three or four months old at this point. And uh, listen to what he has to say because he talked about that for an entire uh, show on Real Life Real Estate. But not this show because this show is question and answer week. And I need you guys to start sending in some questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question. And if you ask me a stupid question, I simply won't read it. And now everyone whose question doesn't get answered is going to say, oh, man, I asked a stupid question. Not necessarily. Sometimes I get to these things after I leave the studio, but I usually save them up for the next program. You can call 877-772-9658. You can go to realliferealestate.com and use the question and answer tab. Or if you just want to email me directly, just email askbina at gmail.com with your question because I only have one or two more here and then it's going to be radio silence for the last 25 minutes of the program. A question from Donna, 
who does not say where she is writing from. She says, I am getting to ready to auction off a lakefront lot next weekend. Do you have any advice for maximizing my price at the auction? Well, Donna, the thing that maximizes the price at the auction is getting a large number of qualified buyers there. That's that's the key thing. I mean, the property is what it is. It's a lot. So, I mean, I can't tell you to go stage your lot or make it pretty or make it smell good. You know, it'd be nice if people could see it. So, obviously, if you need some manicuring, you're going to do that. But the, the key thing with auctions is how many butts are there in those seats when the auction starts. I've seen auctions where... I've seen many auctions, many, many auctions where properties went for more money than they ever would have gone for had it not been for the the bidding fever. And I've seen uh, auctions where properties went for a lot less than they really should have because there weren't enough people there bidding against each other. So anything, I, I assume you have an auctioneer that's involved in this and that they've been doing advertising and they've probably put a sign up on the property They've probably they probably have their systems. They maybe have mailed or emailed people who are on their auction list. They have um, maybe put an ad in the penny saver or something like that. Um, hopefully, they you hired a good auction company and they actually have people on their list who are interested in lakefront lots. But in addition to that, Donna, I would have ads. If you had to do this yourself, I'd still do it. I'd have ads in Craigslist every day. I'd have signs around the the lake. That, that said, you know, absolute auction, uh, Saturday, whatever the Saturday is, the, tw- the 30th, um, you know, the highest bidder takes it. Uh, and, and I would put those everywhere. I mean, if, if, if it were my auction, there would not be a single person who could be in that area between now and Saturday that would not know there was an auction happening. Because that, that is the key. It's partly... Of course, having the right bidders there, but also there's a feel if you've ever been to one of these things that I, I'm here. I'm here against a hundred other people. Oh man, maybe I better up my minimum bid that I was thinking of because I really want to get this. So that would be my recommendation to you, Donna. And good luck with it. I'd love to know how that turns out. It's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate, 877-772-9658. You can also go to our website at realliferealestate.com or you can send an email directly to me at askvina at gmail.com. Let's see, got a couple of questions popping up here. Um, Oh my goodness. I'm going to hold this one until after the break because it's... It's very complex, and I'm actually going to have to think about it for a couple of minutes before I can give any kind of a a pseudo-intelligent answer. So we will go to uh, the other question. Um, Let's see, a question from Matt. He says, I'm looking for someone that can give me ideas for buy and hold strategies using other people's funds and credits to tie properties up. I need to purchase outright from the owner, so no owner financing. The investors, I get to use their funds, obviously get a return during that time period, and then giving me the option or availability to buy them within five years or possibly longer. I'm finding the deals. I want to rent them out and be able to buy them for after a period of time. Does that make any sense? Any creative ideas you have in mind or ways I should structure the deal or am I crazy? Well, no, Matt, I I would say you're not crazy. I would say 
you have a very surface level knowledge of how creative financing works and and why third party creative finance people your 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 lenders your partners folks like that uh do what they do and from what i am reading here in your email kind of reading between the lines you are probably offering to give up more than you need to give up. Because it appears that what you're saying is, let me let the other guy own it. I will control it for a few years. And then at some point I've got to completely, I got to find the money to completely pay off that property. And most people looking to buy rental properties to own want to fully own it and control it from day one and that is that is very possible and it's done all the time so let me let me set you in the right direction about what to look at and study and and think about in approaching possible money people number one yes they're going to get a return but it's going to it's not going to be because you are paying them rent or your tenants paying them rent or anything like that it's going to be because you have come up with some sort of rate of return for them, which might be, if it's a lender, it might be a, 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 just a number, like you're going to get 6% a year, you're going to get 8% a year. If it's a partner, it's going to be, you get some percentage of the actual profits of the property uh, for some time period, which means also in the months when you don't, when we don't have a tenant, you don't get any money because I don't get any money either. And the portion of the profits is zero because there were no profits. You want to work uh, largely within your circle of influence initially and in talking to people about money. You cannot just go out and, I don't know, put, put up bandit signs that say, looking for private money, I pay X percent because there's, well, there's just laws against that. You might want to go into the Real Life Real Estate Archive and look for any show done by Jillian Sidoti. Jillian Sidoti talks about the... Uh, downsides of <laughs> openly making offers when you don't have some sort of a sort of sort of an SEC uh, allowance to do that. Um, the terms that you're looking for are private lender and partner. You might also want to listen to the archives of anything by Sean McCluskey, where he's talking about credit partners and cash partners. That's a, that's a good thing to listen to. Uh, you, you just you sort of get, you need to get more of a grip on what it is you're offering, because right now I don't really see what you are offering other than I kind of want to end up with a property and I kind of want somebody else to get a return and then at some point in the future something different happens. That's that's the thing about it that worries me. Ideally, at some point in the future, what happens is you pay off the property, not not that you you have to go to the bank and get a loan. Because what if you can't do that, or what if you don't have the cash to pay it off? If that's your plan, so. Number one, Matt, is what are you looking to accomplish? What kind of exit strategy do you have for these properties? You're going to you want to continue to, to own them for the rest of your life. You're going to sell them at some point. What sort of return can you reasonably offer and still make what you want to make? And then, who are those people that you're going to approach in regards to actually doing that? You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. 877-772-9658 is the number to call if you have any questions. If you uh, want to send an email, you can either go to our website at realliferealestate.com where you can also sign up for weekly email alerts about the upcoming program 
or you can send an email directly to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you happen to be listening to Real Life Real Estate on our podcast, remember that we are not just a podcast. We're an actual live radio program that airs every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Maple Knoll Radio Network here in Cincinnati. As in, you can turn on your radio and actually hear it coming through your speakers. You can also listen from anywhere in the world at wmkvfm.org through the live streaming audio, which gives you the chance to do things like ask questions on Question and Answer Week, which it is this week. 877-772-9658 is the number to call. Uh, you can also send an email to askvina at gmail.com uh, or you can... Um, Go to realliferealestate.com, fill it in that way. But in any case, ask a question because there is no show today without your questions. I don't have some pile of notes here that uh, I can go through and start, you know, saying stuff if we don't get any questions. Uh, not so much a question as a comment from Kenneth. He says, Vina, I heard the top of your show where you talked about how hot the market is and how low inventory is. The good news is for those of us who know how to find properties that aren't in the MLS, the offers and counter offers on our properties are flying around like bullets. You just have to duck and cover because so many people want the good deals if you have them for sale. And the only way to do that is to find them through non MLS sources. And that is absolutely true. In fact, Ron Legrand talked about that briefly on last week's program, that uh, non-MLS sources right now are the way to find the good deals. Let the let the folks who don't know any better go, go fight with everybody else over all the HUD properties and the remaining foreclosures on the market and let them pay more than you really want to pay to uh, make that happen. And... Uh, learn to move with the market that's you know it would I, I don't know if it would be good or bad if the real estate market was always the same year after year after year i guess it would be kind of boring but luckily it's not boring financing comes and goes uh you know the, the inventory comes and goes the the kind of the kinds of properties that are hottest change you know, right now, there are a lot of people looking for good cash flowing rentals that they don't have to do a ton of work to. They don't have to do $40,000 worth of work to those properties in order to get them rent ready. They want something they can, you know, paint and carpet and maybe replace a furnace. And uh, if you have those to sell at investor prices where the buyers can actually make money, uh, those are very hot. They typically are not on the market very long at all. So uh, yes, you're absolutely right, Paul. It's always it's always a good market or a bad market, depending on whether you're buying or selling, right? And right now it's a good market if you're selling and if you are buying but do not have um, the ability to do things other than find what's already on the market it doesn't doesn't feel so good right now but hey 
it's all good if you keep up with the markets. Uh, question answer week on real life real estate investing. You can send your questions to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Or you can call in a question toll free at 877-772-9658. Question from Tom who says, many years ago I took a weekend real estate class from your father. I think I briefly met you there. (laughs) It was... Yeah, I was probably like 11. Uh, he was a great speaker with great content. And uh, do you have a copy of his book? And actually, yes, I, I do have a copy of his book. It's uh, you know been out of print now for, golly, I think he taught his last class in 88 or 89. But yeah, I, I do have a copy. And Tom, if you want to send me your uh, physical address, I would be happy to mail you a copy of that. Although, you know, the tax part, not so up to date anymore. The part about here's how you rent your apartments. You put ads in the paper. Not so up to date anymore, but I understand the desire to have it. But he actually had a real question. He says, I own a 20 unit property in Cincinnati. I have satellite dishes all over the place. I'm trying to turn lemons into lemonade. Is there some way I can negotiate a group rate, which would be better than normal with my local cable telephone or satellite providers to be my primary TV internet phone provider? In turn, I could offer rate better rates to my tenants, possibly get rid of or significantly reduce those satellite dishes and maybe make an, in, a little extra money. Also, my lower level apartments get less than acceptable cell phone reception. Any way to solve that? Uh, you know, Tom, one direction to go would just be wire the entire building for cable and raise the rent and offer it as part of the rent. Say it's, you know, it's an all-inclusive thing. Uh, we went through this on a 14-unit building that we owned, and we talked to the local uh, cable provider, and they were willing to both uh, put in cable and high-speed internet, like super-duper high-speed internet, for all the folks as long as we, the owners, were paying for it. So it it wasn't, you know, they weren't going to, they weren't going to, make a special effort to wire a building that frankly is, you know, fairly small compared to some of the big complexes, uh, unless it was going to be included in part of, as part of the rent. But it is, uh, it is in fact a a big come on in your apartments. Particularly, I don't know where this is, but if it's anywhere near a university to say free high speed wireless, blah, 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 um, you can raise your rents because of that. Uh, in terms of the cell phone reception, I don't know what to tell you about that because I'm guessing your tenants probably have different cell phone providers and, you know, maybe you could call some cell phone providers and say, I have a space available for you to rent on my roof for one of your towers and you should know that reception isn't really good here and see if anybody bid on that. But, I, you know, they, they could they could be one of, what, six or seven different providers around here, so... I don't know how to help all of your tenants with that. You are aware that you can tell tenants that they can't hang stuff on your building, right? And I know this this was a big this was a big issue a few years back when uh like a decade when satellite dishes were humongous and actually created a a danger to the building like in high winds they could pull out and if your building was brick you're pulling out mortar and all that stuff. So you 
can just say no satellite dishes. Now that might, you know, cost you some tenants if you were not in return saying, oh, and by the way, you get free cable with your unit. A question from Van in Charlotte. In purchasing properties for rental, we occasionally run into the original homeowner still being in the property. What process do you take to move the foreclosed owner from the property before renting it? Knock on the door, send a letter, eviction, pay them to move, or other. Um, that is a very common issue, Van, although it sounds like what you're saying is you are buying a foreclosure that still has the person in it, and that actually is kind of unusual. Any, any more usually the bank... Um, moves people out and junks the properties out before they try to sell them. But it's not unusual that a homeowner would sell his house and then need time to move. Um, apparently you're running across this situation. Uh, if, if, if it's, if it is case A where the owner lives in the property, your intention is to buy it for rental and the owner is asking for time to move following the closing. You work that into your numbers because you know you're going to lose at least, well, probably two months rent by the time the owner stays there for 30 days and then you turn it over and get it on the market. I've had experiences in the past where owners have said, I need to sell the property before I can move. I need to get the money before I can move and I need 30 days. And then they were still there 90 days later, which is uncool. So... In those situations, the way I write up the contract is you have 30 days or whatever we've negotiated to move. If you have not moved by then, we're going to be signing a lease at the closing. And the lease is going to say that you owe me $600 per month or whatever the number is uh, at the beginning of each month following the first one. And the reason I do that is not because I actually expect the owner to stay. It's because I need some grounds on which to evict him, i.e. non-payment of rent. You can uh, evict a holdover owner. You have to be careful if it is a foreclosure where the owner is still there because there are laws in place to protect those owners and many times they get much longer notice than you would have to give a tenant to move. Uh, in some states, I think it's as much as 90 days, like they have to give 90 days notice to move. And really what you want is for them to just go away and everybody be nice, right? So your idea of knocking on the door, explaining that you are the new owner, um, that you intend to rent the place, if they would like to rent it from you, you'd be happy to talk to them about that. Or if not, when, when, when are they planning on moving? And if they say, never, <laughs> uh, file file on them, you know, in what, whatever way your state allows you to, and also offer them money to move. Say, you know, I don't want to go through this. You don't want to go through this. You already went through a foreclosure. If you are out by two weekends from now and the property is broom clean, I will give you $500 and I'll hire the moving truck. You tell me you're moving and the moving truck will be in front of your house on Saturday. That is usually the really cheapest way and also the um, kindest way, if you will, to do that. So thank you very much for your uh, email, uh, Dan. And we are going to take another break. If you have any last minute questions for Real Life Real Estate, send them by email. 
askveen at gmail.com or give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week and here at the last moment, got a bunch of questions via the Real Life Real Estate contact form. And this is, this is a funny one. He says, this is Mike from Madison, Wisconsin. He says, I heard you talking about wholesaling. And at one point you mentioned that you had a student that wholesales a hundred houses a year and that you do roughly one per week. And yet you live in the same market. How many times have the two of you competed on a deal? Can you talk for a minute about competition if you believe in such a thing or not, et cetera? Uh, Yes, I you did you did hear me say that, and it is true. And uh, this uh, this uh, student of mine and and you know that, that we're not the only two wholesalers in the area. There are you know probably a hundred people in the area that would at least try and call themselves wholesalers. Whether or not they actually do any deals is another question. But there's there's probably six to ten fairly heavy duty, consistent, you know. Do, do lots of deals, you know, for 40 to 50 or more deals a year here in the area. And uh, the particular person that you heard me talking about, uh, we have competed on one deal, to my knowledge, in the past 12 months. Because, you know, you remember those when, <laughs> when you go out and look at a property and make an offer and you call back later and they say, oh, I sold it to somebody. And I say, oh, who was that? And it, it, it it's happened one time in the past 12 months. And, you know, it happens occasionally with other folks as well. Um, I don't spend a lot of time getting twisted up in a knot about who's competing with me. I mean, obviously, I'm sitting here doing a radio show giving advice to people who want to compete against me. Uh, and the thing that the thing that I'm ha constantly having to tell people is that the apparent competition and the real competition are very different things. We all got bent out of shape when we started seeing newspaper articles saying, oh, this hedge fund is planning on buying a thousand properties in Cincinnati or Orlando or Madison or wherever in the, in the next year. And there's five other hedge funds moving in and they're going to suck up all the inventory. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And they did that for a few years and I still did the same number of deals I'd always done. The, the I get emails all the time from people who say, I belong to a national giant organized company and we're moving into the Cincinnati market and we want you to work for us. And I say, yeah, I'm going to pass on that because I've seen dozens of other companies uh, say this and come into the market and not understand it and not actually pull off building a business. The the folks who have pulled off building a business and who are, who are, you know, working with employees, virtual assistants, partners, so that they can actually handle the level of work that it takes to buy and, buy and or rent and or sell 50 to 100 properties a year is, is a small number. I mean, most people do not have the stomach to do what you need to do. And, and by that, I'm, I just mean surely the work. I mean, like how, how many moving parts there are uh, to all to all the deals. So 
there's this apparent competition, which is how many people are at my RIA group, which is how many bandit signs are there in my neighborhood, which is how many other letters and postcards do I see piled up on seller's tables when I show up at their house. And then there's the real competition, which is who's doing that consistently? Who's answering the phone when sellers call? Who knows how to evaluate a deal so that they're making an intelligent offer that's both going to make money for them and also, you know, if they're wholesaling, going to make money for a buyer? And that number is very small. And the challenge I always throw out when, when I get that, oh, I live, in the, I live in the city with more competition than any place else in the world, which is every place I go, that's what I hear, is next 10 bandit signs you see, call them. See how many of them actually answer the phone. In my experience, it will be two to three of 10 answer the phone. Now, if you had a sign out that said, I buy houses, would you not answer that phone when it rang? I mean, doesn't that just make sense? Like, I want to talk to this person while they're while they're trying to call me. It'd be two or three out of 10. And for the other seven, leave a message and leave a message that says, I have a house in the best part of my city and I need to get rid of it cheap because I inherited you know, something, something that would make someone call back and see how many people call you back. And the answer will be maybe another one or two. So if half the folks who are putting that marketing out there aren't either aren't organized enough to call back or they just put the signs up because their coach told them to do it and the truth is they don't want to talk to sellers or maybe their marketing's been very successful and they're trying to do everything all by themselves and they don't have time to call you back. And that's just the folks who bother to even put out the signs. The 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 competition is not is never what it seems like it is. And there are no lack of deals out in the world. There is no lack of there are no lack of people who are very motivated to sell. You know, sometimes myself and one of my competitors will both talk to the same seller and for whatever reason the seller likes me better or likes them better. Maybe they prefer to deal with a guy or they prefer to deal with a woman or you know, I talk too slow or who knows, who knows why it is, but you don't need to, you don't need to focus on what other people are doing. You need to focus on how to, on being the best that you can be. And that is what's going to make you have a business over the long haul. And I've seen, it's funny over the last year or two, I've seen several of the folks that I would have put into that category of big competitors in the wholesaling business in particular evolve into something else I know one of them has gone full-time into apartment buildings now, and that's his primary business. I know one of them uh, actually did go to work for one of the hedge funds and is buying a very different kind of property now than what he was looking for when he was wholesaling because they're doing something different with it than a typical wholesale buyer would be doing. So do not worry about that too terribly much. And thank you very much for your question. Um, question here from Dan in Hamilton. It's almost like I set this up, but I did not see Mike. It's right here on my computer screen. I'm not making this question up. He says, what are the advantages of joining a real estate association? (laughs) Because I think listeners hear me all the time talking about Cincinnati RIA, you know, greater Dayton RIA, RIA groups. And the funny thing is over, over time, my answer to that has evolved because I have been a member of a real estate, one or more real estate associations constantly since 1992. And in 1992, what I would have told you is, oh man, I can go there and get questions answered. And, you know, they bring in these speakers and the speakers tell me how to make money. And, um, you know, I just, I learned so much and it's so cheap. That would have been, that would have been my answer in 1992. 
by probably 2002, I had done enough deals that I was the speaker, right? That, you know, the, the, I was still learning things from the speakers, definitely. But sometimes the, these were topics that were coming back around. I'd heard that particular speaker before. And I continued to go to the meetings because I got a lot out of the networking, like I would like I would hang out with people and they would tell me things that I didn't know about neighborhoods that I weren't that I wasn't that familiar with. Uh, they would tell me who their roofer was if I needed a roofer. They would uh, talk to me about um, uh, some new building project that was going up that I wasn't aware of. And it was it was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, getting getting a constant news feed about what was going on in the market. And by 2012, where I, you know, I'm still I still to this day attend every RIA meeting where I'm in town and I attend a lot of other people's RIA meetings when I am out of town. Um, I enjoy the people. You know, it's a room full of folks who are entrepreneurial and who believe in private property rights and who are positive about their lives. Uh, I sell a lot of properties at those uh, places. I find partners. I find deals. Uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a huge business resource. So I am a huge fan of real estate associations. And when I hear somebody say, well, I, I, don't, I don't go to mine anymore because, you know, it's a bunch of beginners. No, well, no, it's not, A. And, and B, you're telling me those beginners don't have anything to offer you? They don't, they don't have any deals, any money, anything like that, any potential to, I don't know, be a, an employee or a partner? So yes, join your local real estate investors association. That's the, that's the bottom line. We are out of time on this week's question and answer week. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, and we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>